Well, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. It's going to be on page 1041 in the Pew Bible. So if you don't have your own Bible, go ahead and grab this black Bible here. And if you have a different translation, you might want to grab this just for the scripture reading because we're all going to read it together. Okay, Um, page 1041, we'll read Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. If you don't own a Bible, we do have these free Bibles. The print is super small, but um, if you want a Christian-centered Bible... Feel free, just let me know, or they're at the back as well. You can take one of those on your way out. All right, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Let's all read it together. Are you guys there? Yeah? All right, let's read the Word of God together. Ready? Begin. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, Work out your self-salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work, according to his purposes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we praise you for the sweet truth in this text. You have an overwhelming demand of us in this passage, and you have an even greater truth, a greater promise, a greater foundation for us. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to feel the weight of the calling of this passage and help us then to feel the relief and the power of this passage for our lives individually and for our lives as a church family, and not only for our lives as a church, but for our lives for our neighbors, for our world as we seek to make Christ known to them. We pray for any of our non-Christian friends that are here that you would open eyes, unstop deaf ears, and help them to see the glory of King Jesus, that they would gladly give their lives to him. So give them that gift of faith, we pray, as they hear the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in our series on Philippians, and the main command of the whole book of Philippians, the whole letter to the Philippians, is Philippians 1.27, where it says... Uh, Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So there it is, as citizens of heaven, each individual part of a, a citizenship, part of a society of the gospel, a society of heaven, live worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether Paul comes or is absent, you are striving together side by side in the faith of the gospel. That's what the church is here for. We are here not to strive by ourselves for the gospel. We're here, we are here to strive individually for the gospel, but also communally, as a community, striving side by side together for the gospel. And we're going to need humility for that. We're going to need unity for that. And so last week, we heard Philippians 2, 12, um, 1 through 11, that we need to think in unity and think like Jesus. This is a call for gospel unity so that God can enact gospel growth. Okay, that's what Philippians is about. Gospel unity for gospel growth. So one of the keys to growing as a Christian and as a church, one of the keys to growing as someone who loves God and loves neighbors more consistently and truly is discontentment. Are you discontent? You need a certain level of discontentment to grow. You need to have a holy discontentment and a holy unrest with where you are so that you long for God more to take you to where you need to grow. If you're comfortable where you are as a Christian, 
You feel like you're just fine, you're just mature enough, you know God enough, you love God enough, you love people enough, then you can't grow. You won't grow. And you don't grow. But if you have a holy discontentment that longs for more, the fact that we are not finally saved yet, we are not fully glorified yet, we still have indwelling sin in our hearts and we still have new challenges with which to love God and love neighbors and love one another, then we need to be discontent. We need to not be happy and comfortable with where we are in our Christian lives. We need to grow. Now, there are many way, wrong ways to grow as a Christian. Christian slogans are not enough to grow. You can't grow by um, your Sunday school lessons from many, many years ago. You need to grow regularly, just like you can't continue to sustain your body by food you ate 10 years ago. But you said, but I was eating so good from, from 19, from 2000 to 2015, I ate really well. Isn't that enough to just get me through the rest of my life? Nope. You need to eat, you need to eat now. Same thing with your Christian life. Well, I was a Christian for this long, or I learned the Bible this much for this many years. Well, you still need to eat. You still need to feast on God's word. You still need to grow. And Christian slogans are not enough. We need to understand our Bibles and carefully think about what God's word is saying if we're going to know the right and effective way to grow in loving God and loving others all the way to the end of our lives. Let's just face it. Philippians 1.27 is hard. To live worthy as a gospel citizen. As a citizen of heaven, to live worthy of the gospel of Christ, it's hard, it's impossible. Again, like I told you guys earlier, I was going over the church covenant with um, in the new members class today. Have you read the church covenant lately? Sometimes it's discouraging to read that thing, right? Because <laughs> you read all these things we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to be loving each other and caring for each other's needs and praying for each other and supporting the institution of the church and um, personal holiness in our own lives and loving our neighbors and sharing the gospel. And you read that and you're like, man, it's just like a long list of sins in my life, right? Um, it's hard. It's difficult. That's why it says at the very end, may the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. Because we can't do it on our own. But Paul is going to help us today to live this way, to live as a gospel citizen. He gives a crucial key in this verse. So we're going to do verses 12 and 13 this week, but then we're also going to do 12 through 18 next week. But we have to just camp on these two verses because this is so crucial for understanding the Christian life and life as a church. So here's the main idea. I'm going to give you the main idea in one way now, and then I'm going to give you the main idea in about 20 minutes, uh, a refined main idea. So here's the first first shot at it. Work out your salvation. That's in verse 12, right? There's a command at the end of verse 12. Work out your salvation for two reasons. That's the main idea of this text. Work out your salvation for two reasons. And the two reasons are in the text. But I want us to think first about the command. So look at verse 12. It says, Just as you have always obeyed, so now, Paul writes, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. Philippian church is what I want you to do, members. In Philippi, here's the command, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So the command is for for Paul's dear friends, his loved ones, to work out their own salvation. Now, it's important that he says, my dear friends. And the emphasis here is on the word dear. That's why some of your other uh, translations say, my beloved. We don't use that word too much today, but my loved ones. Because these people that Paul's writing, this pervasive impossible command to work out your salvation he's writing it to those who are already loved loved by paul and loved by who god loved by the father in heaven and god demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners christ died for us 
And so Paul wants to remind us, even as he's about to give us this command that um, to work out our own salvation, that we are already loved by God. And we are loved by the brothers and sisters in Christ. So, okay, with this love, what the command here is work out your own salvation with fear and tremble. Let's just think about, I want to think about these words almost word by word. Work out salvation, and then we'll, we'll move on through. Okay, so work out your own salvation. What does it mean to work out your salvation? Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say work for your salvation. Okay? It doesn't say, brothers and sisters, work for your salvation, earn your salvation, garner enough merit and credit for your salvation. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work out your salvation. And so we know from this, and we know from other passages in the Bible, we're going to deal with this in a little bit. We're going to do a lot of theology today, so just get ready for it, okay? Um, we know that you cannot work for your salvation from sins to actually get saved. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. All have turned aside. They all have become useless, Romans 3 says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We will never be able to work enough works for our salvation. Okay? But but the command still is, you need to work something out. You need to do something, right? The command is to do something. Not just to, to say something. Not just to even pray something. we got to be careful here, right? Christians, we, we believe in prayer. We know that God answers prayer. But we need to be careful that we don't merely say, I'm praying about obeying God. Right? It's not enough to just pray about obeying God. We actually have to obey God. If my kids, you know, if I said, you know, hey, go clean your room. And they said, I'll pray about it. You know, and I'm still praying. I'm just waiting for the Lord's leading in my life before I clean my room. No, you're cleaning your room right now or we're going to have a problem, right? So um, it, it, same thing with, with God. It's, it's not like we just pray about obeying God as if that means we could defer obedience. We can't defer obedience. The command here is not to pray about your salvation, but to work out your salvation, Okay. Um, what does it mean to work out? Here's a, defi- a dictionary definition. It means to bring about a result by doing something. So bring about the result of salvation. We'll talk about what that means in a second. By doing something, by working out, by achieving or accomplishing. So another way of, of translating this, a better way of translating this is accomplish your salvation. Okay, that's a problem. I hope that doesn't sit well with you at first. Accomplish your salvation do something to bring about your salvation, bring about the result of salvation by working something out. That's what the word means, to accomplish something. Now, before we think think about the word salvation, when we talk about accomplish your salvation, the word accomplish there or work out, it's a present tense, which means it's not just do it one time. It means continually be working out your salvation. Continually be a continually be continually accomplishing your salvation. Keep doing it repeatedly, over and over again, regularly, constantly throughout your life. Now, what is it? What does it mean to work out your salvation? Now we know it doesn't mean you're saved by works, right? You can't be saved by works. So what does it mean by your salvation? We're say, what does Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say? For by grace you have been, you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Just go back a few pages from Philippians. You'll see that in Ephesians that you are, you have been saved. 
past tense. You have been saved by grace, through faith, not of yourselves, not of works. You cannot be saved by works. You cannot have been saved. Let me be more specific. You cannot have been saved, Ephesians 2.8, by works. It's by grace through faith, or as the, the reformers like to say it correctly, by faith alone and not by works. So it doesn't mean, well, I mean, so we, that's the problem. It, it can't mean that. It can't contradict that. Also, who's the one who works out our salvation? What does Philippians 1, 6 say? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Speaking of God completing that work. So salvation can refer to, what does it mean by the word salvation then? Salvation can mean just being saved. Like if you're stranded on a boat, okay, Houston, and, and, and you're in a flood and someone saves you, you say they were your salvation. And that would be a, a Completely legitimate use of the word. And the Bible does use the word like that sometimes. Not referring to theologically saved from your sins, saved from hell, being forgiven of your sins by God. Sometimes it just means saved from a dire situation. So maybe that's what it means. That, that, I don't think that's what it means. I think it is a theological sense of being saved from sin. But how does the Bible talk about being saved from sin? There are four ways we could talk about being saved from sin. We can talk about initial salvation. But that's what we often call conversion. Or justification, when you are declared righteous. At one point, you were not a Christian. You believed in Christ. You repented from your sins. And then you were initially saved. You have been saved by grace through faith. Then we could talk about the process of continually being saved. Okay? Progressive salvation, in a sense. Like, you're, you're progressing in your Christian life. You're continually being saved from sin. You were declared to be saved from sin, initially. And now, in your life, I'm breaking the power. I have sins in my life. Everyone here has sins in their lives. And we're continually breaking the power of sin in our lives. That's progressive salvation. And then, at the end, we have this thing called final salvation. Where Christ comes again, and you are you have the resurrected body, and you will never sin again. So in one sense, in initial salvation, you're saved from the penalty of sin. In progressive salvation, you're being, sa- you're being constantly saved from the power of sin. And when Christ comes again, you will be saved from the presence of sin. Actually, even when you die and you go to heaven, you'll be saved from the presence of sin in final salvation. So it could be referring to any of those three, or there's a fourth one, which is all three together. Just the whole thing is salvation. So when it says work out your salvation, is it saying work out the whole project of salvation? I don't think so. Is it saying work out your initial salvation? Work out your conversion? Work out your justification? No, because you are saved. You have been saved by grace through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. So initial salvation, justification, conversion, becoming a Christian is not by works. It's by faith alone, by grace alone. You don't have to be good enough to become a Christian today. You just trust in Jesus Christ and turn from your sins right now. And you'll become a Christian right now. You don't need to work up for that. That's initial salvation. So this is not, when it says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it's not talking about initial salvation. I think it's actually talking about final salvation or maybe a mixture of progressive work out your salvation continually in your life. Keep on being saved from sin and work towards the final salvation when you will finally be saved. Now, you're saying, where does it say that in the Bible? Does the Bible actually talk about final salvation, PJ? Or are you just, um, quote, are you just making up theological categories? Well, let me give you one verse. There's a lot. Let me just give you one. Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God proved his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. Now listen to verse 9. How much more then, since we have now been, have now been initial, we have now been declared righteous by His blood, we have been justified, we have been initially saved by His blood, will we be saved through Him from wrath? Will we? Now, now that we have been reconciled, how much more will we, will we in the future be saved from wrath? That's Romans 5, 9. And listen to verse 10 right after it. It says it again. For if while we were enemies, we were, past tense, reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, past tense, having been initially saved, how much more will we be saved by His life? Future tense. Final salvation. Okay, there's other texts, but that's just one to show you that the New Testament and Paul himself has different categories for salvation. So when Paul's saying work out your salvation, he's not saying work enough and be good enough to become a Christian. That's not what he's saying. He's saying work out your salvation in such a way that you continually are being freed from the power of sin and are working towards a final salvation. Now, can you do or, because I said accomplish your salvation, that sounds... Actually, let's just be honest. That sounds heretical. That sounds like heresy. False teaching. Accomplish your salvation. Can you do or accomplish your salvation in any sense of the word? Let me give you... Um, now, this is where our theology, our systematic theology, and, our, and the Bible punch up against each other. And which one, which one should win? The Bible or our systematic theology? The Bible, right? So let me just give you some of these words to... Um, to, to stretch what you mean by saved. Okay, and then you can go back to your systematic theology categories where it's safe. Okay, who saves us? Who saves us? God does, right? God saves us. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I become all things to all men that by all means I may save some. Who's saving in that verse? Paul is going to save people. No, Paul, your theology is wrong. God saves, not you. But Paul says... I save some. Now, he's not saying he replaces God or that he died on the cross for sins. That's not what it means. But I'm just saying, your your language, we have to be careful with our language. We have to let the Bible's language be stronger than our language, right? So you just got to embrace that word. But if, if Paul's not enough for you, what about Jesus? Jesus actually says something like this. Okay, listen to this. You've heard this verse before, but you probably haven't thought about this part. Jesus says in Mark 8, 34 and 35, you can turn there if you like, if you're fast enough. Mark 8, 34 and 35 doesn't Jesus tell his, his hearers to save their lives? He says, um, if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life, whoever wants to save his own life, must lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel, he will, he will save it. I thought God saves it. But even Jesus has a category for saving your life. Now, he's not saying you become your savior, you died on the cross for your sins, you paid for your own sins. But there's a sense in which there's human participation. Okay? In a sense. Now, you have to be very careful here because you could go off a theological deep end. But the, I'm just you have to let the Bible define our theology and not the other way around. Okay? So, yes, Paul saves people. Yes, gospelizers who gospelize save those they gospelize when they believe in Christ. And people save their lives... People actually save their lives by choosing Jesus, deciding to take up their cross and following him. These are true statements. These are biblical statements. And yet, what we don't mean by this, let's clarify, what we don't mean by this is that we ultimately save people as though it depended on us. So if you're a gospelizer like Paul, 
gospelizing people to save them, you're not ultimately saving them. We can gospelize, but if God didn't do the gospel itself, if, if Christ didn't die on the cross and rise from the dead, there is no salvation, right? If God didn't give us the message, we have nothing to share. If God didn't give us the boldness, we wouldn't even say it. If God did not give them ears to hear, they wouldn't have heard it. And if God didn't open their hearts and minds, then they wouldn't have believed it and been saved. So who's the one who's actually doing the hard work of saving them? God is doing it. Now, does God use you in part of it as an evangelist? Sure. Sure. But God is the one. Salvation depends on God, not on us. And yet God uses means. He uses evangelists. That's why we're here, right? We're here to gospelize each other even today. Now, when we say we save ourselves, when Jesus says, lose your life to save it, we don't mean by that that saving your... We don't mean you save yourself in the sense that you don't need God's cross or resurrection or the message or the grace to open your heart and mind to the gospel spoken. We don't mean you add to your faith in Jesus' works enough obedience to finally be justified and be good enough for God. That's not what we, we don't mean that. We need to be clear here. But what we do mean by work out your own salvation, actually Paul, go back to Philippians 2.12. There's another word Paul gives us in Philippians 2.12 that, that, um, parallels salvation here. Do you see it? He said, the command is work out your own salvation just as you always have worked out your salvation. That's what he's basically saying. Just as you've always worked out your salvation, work out your salvation. But he doesn't say just as you've always worked out your salvation. What does he say? Just as you've always obeyed. There's a parallel. What does it mean to work out your salvation? To what? Obey. Just as you've always been obeying, now even in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. Continue to obey. Continue to obey what God has said. So this picks up the obedience of Jesus, remember, from uh, Philippians 2.8, where Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus obeyed for us. And now we have been obeying. When you became a Christian, you obeyed by believing. The first time you believe, the first time you believe the gospel, you're obeying the gospel call to repent and believe. And just as you've been obeying in your Christian life, continue to obey. Just as you obeyed in the beginning, continue to work out your salvation by obeying. That's what it means to work out your salvation. It's to obey, not only in Paul's presence, but even more in his absence. What does that mean? I remember as a kid uh, being in church, and you know, when kids are hanging out, and you do all kinds of things that you wouldn't do when adults are around. And then and then all of a sudden, the pastor, you, the pastor turns the corner, right? And he starts to walk towards you, and what do the kids start saying? Shh, be quiet, quiet, the pastor's coming, stop, you know. Why all of a sudden do you want to fix your behavior as kids when the pastor's coming? Because his presence means you have to obey, right? Well, he's going to see me and, you know, the pastor, he doesn't fear me. He's going to tell me the truth and so he's going to rebuke me or he's going to tell me about God or something. And so I, I got to fix it so I don't get rebuked. And so we, we adjust our behavior around who we deem to be holy people. People who will bring us the presence of God and bring and give us the business, right? They'll give us the word of God if we need it. And so we want to fix our behavior around them. And Paul is saying, not only in my presence, but even more in my what? Absence. It's not obeying God when people are around. Who cares if your pastor's around? Who cares if your wife is around or not? Obey God when you're online, right? God is there. God is present. You don't just obey because people are going to find out. That's not obedience. That's not Christian obedience. You obey because God is there and God knows and the Holy Spirit lives in you. That's why we obey. Amen. Not because people are looking. 
And so again, here's the main idea restated. Accomplish your salvation. And I said for two reasons, right? Be accomplishing your salvation. Be obeying as a way of accomplishing your, your progressive and final salvation. For two reasons. And the big one is in verse 13. What's reason number one? So if you're taking notes, um, half of the message was the command and the other half is the two reasons. Okay, so now let's look at the two reasons why we are to work out this command. And I think when you think about these two reasons, not only do you understand it, but it gives you power to actually do it. So reason number one is in verse 13. It says for, now this is giving you the reason why. Why Why can we, why should we, why must we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Why should we work out our salvation? Why should we accomplish our salvation? Because God is working in you. Or I would say it this way, accomplish your salvation, or I would say accomplish what God is working in you. Or a shorter way of saying it is, accomplish God's activity. What is God doing in you? He's what? Say it. What is he doing? He's working in you. God is active in your life. God's activity is present in your soul right now. And so what's the command? Accomplish God's activity. Did you know God is working in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure right now? He is actively present. He's not sleeping at the wheel. He hasn't left you until he doesn't leave you from Sunday to Sunday and say, oh, now I'm going to work in you because you came to church. God is actively, constantly working in you. And your call, the call is for you to accomplish God's activity Amen. in your life. God is working in you. What does it mean for God to be working? It means to effect, to um, to put one's capabilities into operation. Is the tech, is the dictionary definition? So God puts our capabilities of working out our salvation into operation. He actually effects it in our lives. And the word here, look at it again. Look at the verse. It doesn't say for for God works in you. It doesn't say for God works in you. What does it say? For it is God who what? Who is working in you. Paul goes extra. He's, he's intentional here. He's doing, he's, he's using extra words to not just say God works in you guys. Bethany Baptist Church, God works in you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying God is working in you. He wants you to feel the present tense. That God is constantly, habitually, continually, regularly, repeatedly, daily, hourly working in your soul. He doesn't stop. He doesn't quit. He just keeps working in your soul. He keeps working on you. Paul wants us to feel the grace of that reality. That God hasn't given up on you even when you thought he did. God hasn't given up on you even when you give up on yourself. Even when your church gives up on you or members of the church give up on you. God never gives up on you. He's continually working in you. We don't sense God's activity, but God is working in us today and every day, every moment of the day. The question is whether we're sensitive to it and whether we're going to accomplish the activity he's already working in us. Many members here in our church are unaware of God's activity. And one of the biggest blessings you can do to someone else's life is to bring their attention to it. So what is God working in you? Two things in the text, right? What is he working in you? Both to will and to what? To do or to work. 
both to will and to work. So in other words, what is the will? That means God works in you, your purpose, your resolve, your desire, your wanting. Your purposing, your resolutions, your desires for good, your inclinations of love, they are all worked in you by God himself. God actively puts that in you. God gives you the desires for good. So you are here today in this gathering. You know why? Because you wanted to be here. I think most of you did. I don't know if so. maybe some of you were forced to be here. But most of you wanted to be here this morning. You know why you wanted to be here this morning? Who put that in you? Who worked that in you? God did. Some of you want to really understand Philippians 2 and 12, 13 right now. You know why you want to understand it right now? Because God is working that want in you. You know why I want to preach right now and why I love doing this? Because God is working it in me. If you want to obey this, if you want to encourage another member right after we close in prayer, like PJ, hurry up and close the service because there's a member here that I want to talk to and encourage. You know why you want to do that? Because God is putting that want in you. God is working that in your soul. You know why you want to confess your sins to someone else here and get accountability and help? Because God is working in you. Because he's actively working in you. Because he hasn't quit working in you. And that is why we do what we do. That's why we want to do what we want whenever it's good. Now, we can't blame God for everything. We can't blame God for the bad wants, right? When we sinful, when we want sinful things, that is not God working in you. That is us resisting God's work in us. That's us quenching the Holy Spirit and resisting the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about the evil desires. You can't blame God's sovereignty for your sins. That's your desires, not produced by God. But your good desires, every good desire you have, if it's legitimately a good God-glorifying desire, it is only because God has worked it in you first. So how do you grow in this want? You're saying, well, because I mean, let's just be honest. I wake up in the morning and about 5% of my want is to read the Bible. And 95% is to start working on my task list for the day. Or to check the internet, check the emails, and check what's going on, check any messages I have from people. I got 5% want for the Bible. Who put that 5% in there? God, where's that other 95% coming from? That's coming from me, right? And so, so what do you do? How do you grow in your want? You take the want you currently have, the 5%, or at least for me, the 5%, and then you, you act on whatever good desires you have. And you pray that God would grow it. God, I only 7% want to, to read my Bible right now, or to confess my sins to my wife. Can you help me make this want even bigger, so that I, I overwhelmingly want to do it? So, so pray for God to give you more desire. Act on the little desire you have. Because if you don't act on that, guess what happens to that desire? It what? It shrinks. It dies. It doesn't get stronger by you. Wait, well, wait till it grows. No, no. God gave you that 7% or that 25% for you to act on that. Act on the minority desire. Even if it's the minority in your, in your heart. If it's the right one, act on that one and that's how it grows. Confess your lack of desire. God, forgive me for only having 5% desire for your word and not 95% desire for your word. Help me. As I read your word, increase in me the desire. That's how you do anything, right? It says God loves a what kind of giver? Cheerful giver. But here comes Jimmy down the aisle with the, with the offering plate and it's coming to you and your heart's not ready yet. It's not cheerful yet. What do you do? Do you not give? If you only have 7% cheerfulness and the rest of it's like, I've got bills to pay and I can't, I can't give right now. But you know God wants you to and you have that desire to sacrifice. I, but I know God will provide for me, but I can't. You know, and you're wrestling with it and here comes the offering plate. How do you do it? You say, God, forgive me that my heart's not 100% there. I pray that even as I give that you would increase a desire for good, for treasures in heaven and not on earth. 
And that's how you grow in it. Okay, so God gives you to will or the want. But what else does God work in you? Verse 13. Both to will and to what? And to do or to work or to accomplish for his good pleasure. So when you actually accomplish it, who's the one who worked that in you? God did. Your good actions is worked in you by God. In other words, God doesn't just start it by giving you the desire. God finishes it. God works it in you so that you actually, when you act it out, it's God acting it out in you. God effects not only your intentions, but your actions. God effectively works in and through us, and he finishes the work he promised to do in us. So it's not only why are you here because you desire to be here, but because God worked it in you to actually come. Why do some of you want to encourage others? And why, do you, why will some of you actually do it? Why will some of you actually gospelize someone else today? Why will, why are you, why did you sing well? Why did you sing with your heart to the Lord? Why are you going to sing the closing song? To encourage others and to glorify God. Why will you do it? Why did you give? Why are you listening to the word prayerfully right now? Why are you actually doing it? Why are you actually doing the listening right now? Because God is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. We need to be aware of this. And notice verse 13. The end of it. Why does God do this? According to his good purpose. Maybe a better translation is for his good purpose. For his good pleasure. Some of your translations might say good pleasure. In other words, God loves to work in us. God is not a cranky giver. God is a cheerful giver. God is a cheerful worker. When he works on PJ's stubborn heart, I've been a Christian since 1989, when he's working on my stubborn heart and dealing with the sins that, the new sins in my life and the older sins that keep recurring in my life, as he's working in me, God is a cheerful worker. He's working according to his good pleasure. He loves working on sinners. He loves putting desires in your heart for good. He loves carrying those desires all the way out to complete action. He loves not leaving you alone. He loves growing you in your Christian life. It's his good pleasure. Now you're saying, but isn't God sort of selfish? I mean, isn't it all for his glory ultimately? Yes. But is God selfish? No. No. Is it all for his glory? Yes. But it's not selfish. Why? Because when God does everything for his glory, that doing everything for his glory is also at the same time, it's for your good. It's for your joy. Your happiness and goodness is ultimately, comprehensively, and finally found in the glory of God. So God loves to glorify himself, not because he's selfish, but because he's loving. And he wants you to share in that glory so that you enjoy life the way you were designed to enjoy it. And so God continues to work. It's God's pleasure. God's, or I would say this way, God's pleasure is our good and is our joy in him. So what kind of working in us to will and to work is this? Is it's, it's God working in us. How is this different than Old Testament saints and how God worked in them? How is this different? We are not under the old covenant. We are under the what? The new covenant. You know the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant? The old covenant was given first through Moses to Israel and the law was written on stone tablets. But guess what the new covenant is in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. The law is written not on tablets anymore, but written where? On our hearts. And it says here, um, I will... 
put my teaching within them. This is Jeremiah 31, 33. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Listen to this. No longer will each one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. That's the new covenant. And then God says, again, promising the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. Old Testament saints don't get this privilege. You get this privilege of Philippians 2.13. It says this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, God says, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. Listen to this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully obey my ordinances. Why do we obey? Why are we caused to walk in God's way? Because God gave us his Holy Spirit. God gave it through Christ's death and resurrection. That's through the new covenant. Through the new covenant, God writes his law on our heart. God works in us. He gives us a spirit. He gives us a new spirit. He gives us a new heart. He takes out our heart of stone. He causes us to be born again, to use Jesus' terms. And then he gives us the victory in our Christian lives. Day after day after day. Philippians 1, 6 is the promise. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. This power is almighty power working in you. You guys are in Philippians, right? Keep your finger there, but turn back a page or two to Ephesians. Go to Ephesians 1. Just turn to the left in your Bible. I want you to see something here in Ephesians 1, 18. Ephesians 1, 18 says, this is Paul's prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why does he pray that? Because the eyes of our heart are not what? Enlightened. We're darkened to something, right? We're not seeing something in our heart. So Paul wants us to see it. What does he want us to see? It's verse 19. Verse 18 has some, but I want to focus on 19. What does he want us to see with the eyes of our heart? What is the what? Listen how Paul finds words to describe this. What does Paul want us to see? In verse 19? The exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the what? Mighty working of his strength. Listen to how many words of working or might or power or greatness is there. I'm just going to count them here. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. God really wants you to see something here. I am working in you not just a little bit, Not just a tiny bit because I'm really annoyed by you, PJ, and how stubborn you are with some of these stubborn sins in your life. God is not working in you just a little bit. He's not stingy with his working. He has immeasurably great, almighty, infinite power working in you. And our problem is we don't see it. The eyes of our hearts are closed and we are unaware. And so we live our Christian lives day to day feeling defeated. I, I mean, I'm convicting myself even right now. Lance just came up to me during the greeting and said, how are you doing, PJ? And I just said, I feel defeated this week. I didn't even think about how this is applying to the message, but I felt defeated this week. If you want to know why, I'm happy to share with that with you at the door um, conversation. You could pray for me. But the point is, we Christians walk around feeling defeated as if the immeasurable greatness of God's almighty infinite power is not working in us. But it is working in us. We just don't see it. And if you read through Ephesians, the reason I had you turn here, I just want to point out to you what the power is. What is this power that's working in you? In verses 20 through 23, it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead and put everything under his feet. In Philippians 2, or Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it's the power that saved you by grace through faith. It's the power that raised you, a dead sinner, from the dead. That power is working in you. 
It's not just that power. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. It's the power that takes Jews and Gentiles who are hostile to each other for ethnic reasons. And he makes them one family, one body. That takes power. And so the power that works in us is the power that raises Jesus, puts everything under his feet, that saves dirty, dead, evil sinners like us and makes people who would never get along together into one happy family. That is power. And that is working in you. It's working in you so much that Paul makes it the prayer of the end of Ephesians 1 through 3. So look at Ephesians 3.20. Look at Paul's prayer. Well, he prays first, and then what's his benediction here in verse 20? Now to him who is able to do what? Above or exceeding, above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to his what? According to the power, and where's this power? The power that what? Works in us. God is working in you. Power, you have power. You are, I mean, we, we play this game sometimes at our dinner table. If you could have any superhero power, what would you have? You know, and we talk about superhero powers. There's this, I can't remember, there's one website that talks about useless superhero powers. Have you ever seen, have you ever read any useless superhero powers? My wife and I have a favorite one. It's called uh, In Flight Flight. It has like little comic strips of like useless superpowers. So In Flight Flight is the power to fly as long as you're in a flying airplane. So you can fly around the cabin while you're in the airplane, but that's the only time your your power of flight happens. Useless, a useless superpower. Okay, um, whether it's fictional, Marvel or you know comic book type superpowers, or whether it's useless superpowers, we have God's infinite, almighty power. And this is not comic book stuff. This is real. This really transforms your soul. This really changes a community. This really brings the new creation onto earth. This really works out and accomplishes your salvation this power and it's not fictional it's in you it's in every member of this church who's truly saved and so we might ask this question so if god does it if god is the one working in us not just the willing but also the doing then we don't need to do anything right let me give you you're right wrong so let me give you there's let me give you four errors okay here's four errors error number one god does it all and we do nothing wrong we gotta do something. It says work out your salvation. You accomplish God's activity. Error number two, we do all and God does nothing. That's wrong as well. Another error, God does some and we do some. That's partially right, but it's actually wrong. It's not really what this text is saying. Go back to Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It's not saying God does some and we do some. But doesn't the Bible teach that God does some and we do some? I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says, listen to this. Listen to God's work and Paul's work in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So who worked? Paul worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So Paul's like, I worked harder, but I didn't work. God's grace worked. So which one was it, Paul? Was it God's grace that worked in you, or were you the one working hard? Paul's like, yeah, and no. Right? So it's both, right? Um, that, that, there's another one, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I don't live anymore, but who? Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. So I live, but I no longer live. So Paul, are you, are you the one doing the living or are you not doing the living? Yeah, I am. So, so there is both, but it's the, the Philippians 2.12 is not just saying that both are true. God works and we work. It's giving us the relationship between these two things. One other error is God starts and we finish. 
It doesn't say work out your salvation with fear and trembling for God works in you to will and stops there. Because if it's just God works in you to will it, then God starts it. He gives you the desire and then you finish it. That's not what the text says. It's God starts it and then God and us finish it. God and you finish it. God starts it and you and God together, both of you, finish it. So let me give you an illustration of this to see if I could get it. If we were, if you were swimming in an ocean and God says, stand up, you are unable to stand up in an ocean, right? If you're swimming in the ocean and you're in the middle of the ocean uh, and God says, stand, you cannot stand on your own. You're just incapable of doing that. Now, if God told you as you're floating there in the water, climb onto this boat and stand and places a boat for you to stand on and you climb into it and stand in obedience to him, who's doing the standing? You are, right? I mean, you got up, you climbed up. Who did the climbing? You did. And who did the standing? You did in the ocean. So you are standing, not him. You're the one standing. But who made the standing possible? God did. Now, I'm going to go further than God gave you the boat. He didn't only give you the boat. He gave you the strength to stand. He gave you the strength to climb. He gave you the ears to hear his command. He gave you the idea. He gave you the desire and the confidence to do it. So in verse 12, the command is climb and stand in the, in the ocean. And verse 13 is the boat on which you, you have and the strength you have and the ability to hear and the will to do it and the belief that you could do it and the confidence and the action. So God does the beginning and he works all the way through the whole thing and you do your part in reaction to God. So God goes before us. God initiates. We react and respond. And in our response, God doesn't detach but he walks with us and beside us and in us each moment of our walking. What a blessing. What a gift. And we're to do this, it says in verse 12, work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Now, you could say, and I thought this before I listened to um, another sermon on this by John Piper on this particular point. Uh, I, I, You know, with fear and trembling, fear, why should we fear? Well, you fear, you fear danger, right? So, well, work out your salvation because if you don't work it out, you never re- were truly saved. And that's true. So maybe it's the fear of, well, if I'm really saved, then I need to work it out. And that's true theologically and biblically. It's just not what this text is saying. There's no threat in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It's work out your fear or work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not the fear of threat. It's the fear of gift. Have you ever, do you know what that is? A fear of gift? When you get something that's so precious and so valuable that you feel nervous getting it. Right? So um, when our first child was born, we took the baby home and it was a precious gift. And I wasn't, I mean, you know, we, we, it was, you know, we wanted in parenting, you take your baby, we took our baby home. We were excited. We were ecstatic. We couldn't sleep. We didn't care. Um, but we had a church nurse who we called all the time with fear and trembling. Because every little thing that our son did, he's coughing, he's coughing, he's coughing, call, call, call the nurse, you know, and so we'd call the church nurse for every little thing and she'd just calm us down, like, just calm down, you guys are new parents. And, um, it wasn't, you know, we were frequently worried about everything. We had fear and trembling and it wasn't fear that, um, it wasn't fear like necessarily that the baby was gonna die that moment, but it was fear that we would, we might neglect something, that, that this is a precious gift and we wanted, we wanna optimize this, this child's health and experience in the world. And it was, it wasn't the fear of like the threat of death, but it was more of, well, is there discomfort? Is there things we can do? How can we help? We love this child. We wanna serve this child. And so when God gives us the gift of willing and working, infinite power in your soul, do you feel that as a gift? That should cause us to work at our salvation with fear and trembling. What a privilege. Look at your neighbors who are not Christian. 
They do not have infinite almighty God power working in them. And you do. And you're not better than them. You don't deserve it more than them. God was kind to you, right? You get a gift. And so work it out. Accomplish it with fear and trembling. Don't squander it. So what does this mean for Christians? Application here. Christians fighting sin. Work out your salvation from doubt. Salvation from the sin of doubt. By trusting God's word. Because God is enacting salvation in you. Work out your salvation from pride. By repenting from it and serving others. Because God is enacting salvation in you. Work out your salvation from weariness and affliction. By resting in Jesus and relaxing in his promised hope. Because God is working in salvation in you. Work out your salvation from temptation. By trusting God is so good that you don't need to look elsewhere. Because God is enacting salvation in you. Work out your salvation from laziness and complacency by identifying the next small step to take and take that step because God is enacting salvation in you. Work out your salvation from anxiety by trusting his control and not trying to control your health, your relationships, your life, your world, your time frame, your death date because God is enacting salvation in you. Work out your own salvation from guilt by trusting Christ's cross and his death for all of your sins because God is enacting salvation in you. Work out your own salvation from anger and bitterness by repenting from unrighteous anger or by channeling your righteous anger towards God-given directions because God is enacting salvation in you. Work out your own salvation from sexually immoral lust and pornography by cutting off your lust triggers and confessing it to accountability partners because God is enacting salvation in you. God is enacting salvation in you. God is enacting salvation in you. And so what does this mean as a church? We talked about thinking in unity last week, right? Church, be united in Christ. Humble yourselves before one another because God is enacting salvation in you. Encourage each other to be humble and to be united because God is enacting salvation in you. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might think, wow, this is... So you're basically saying, I got to obey all of the Bible and do what it says. Um, and that's God working salvation in me. That doesn't sound like working, PJ. That sounds like slavery. That sounds like prison. In Christianity and the Bible, you might say, Tim Keller articulates it this way, that the church and di- the Bible and church dictate everything that a Christian must believe, feel, and do. Christians are not encouraged to make their own moral decisions or to think out their beliefs or patterns of life for themselves. In a fiercely pluralistic society, there are too many options, too many cultures, too many personality differences for this approach. We all must be free to choose for ourselves how we live. This is the only true authentic life. We should stop faking it. We shouldn't feel guilty. We should only feel guilty when we're not being true to ourselves. We must be free to choose our own chosen beliefs and practices and values and vision for life. Everyone gets to choose their own way. Anyone who says that you can't do this or you can't do that is wrong. They should not impinge on anyone else's choices. Well, what should we say to that? Again, following our brother, Pastor Keller here, he says, um, individual creation of truth, individual creation of morals removes the right for moral outrage. So there's two responses here. Number one, are there people in the world right now who are doing things that you believe are wrong? And you think they should stop doing it no matter what they believe inside? Isn't that true? I mean, if you're not a Christian here, you're like, everyone should do whatever they want. Isn't there some other people in this world who are doing things that they want that you say they shouldn't be able to do that and they need to be stopped? Well, if you believe that, then you do believe there's some kind of moral obligation for people to follow, which stands in judgment over their own internal choices. So what's wrong with Christians also doing that? We're just disagreeing on what those rules are. 
but we all believe in moral obligations. That's number one. You can't really be mad if people are just doing what they want to do, if that's what you believe everyone should do. You, that works until it starts impinging on your beliefs. Then you start to get mad. Like, well, I didn't mean that. Second thing, though, no one is really free anyways. We all have to live for something, and whatever we live for is our ultimate is the ultimate meaning in life and our master, whether it's approval from people, achievement, love, a relationship, our work. Those things are ultimately our Lord and master. In other words, everyone is in a prison, so to speak. Everyone has obligations. Everyone is in a spiritual straitjacket. Even the most independent people who want to be free from everything are chained to their desire for freedom from everything. The ones who want to be independent of everything are dependent on their independence. They are committed to their non-commitments. And so Christianity, though, gives you a Lord and Master who forgives you and dies for you. He's a better Master than whatever else you're committed to. So we would plead with you to come to Him. And then that is the big one. The second reason, we're not going to go over it. It's actually last week's text. What's the second reason why we should accomplish God's activity? Why should we work out our salvation? First of all, because God's working in you. Secondly, it's from verse 12. The very first word of verse 12, at least in the CSB. What's the first word in verse 12? Say it out loud. What's the first word there? Therefore. And the famous Bible teachers say, what is the therefore, therefore? What is it doing there? It's there to bring back the previous words as the reasons for this particular point. So why should you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Because Jesus became a man. Because of the incarnation of Jesus. Because the incarnation of Jesus, the propitiation of Jesus, and the exaltation of Jesus. Because he became a man. He was God and he became a man and humbled himself and took the form of a servant. Why should you work out your your salvation? Because not only did Jesus become a man, he became obedient to the point of death and he died on the cross for your sins. He was the propitiation, bearing God's wrath for your sins. That's why you should work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why else should you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Not just because of the incarnation and the propitiation, but the exaltation. Because God put Jesus as Lord and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is... Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is why you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because he's Lord of your life now. He came for you. He died for you. He's exalted for you. And that is why we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not because we need to finish the salvation ourselves. Christ did it for us. He worked salvation for us. And we are already initially saved. We cannot work for that salvation. Christ did it. He said it is finished. He finished it for us. So Christians... Rest in the accomplishment that Christ has done his work for saving us. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand this just at the end. There are not, it's not religion versus irreligion. That's not what we're talking about. Religion and irreligion will both send you to hell. Irreligion says live however you want because God will accept you because he accepts everybody. That's irreligion. Religion says, be a good enough person. Do enough religious things. And if you do a good enough job and you play the part, then God will accept you. You just got to do enough good. That's also going to send you to hell because you'll never be good enough. The gospel says, you will never be good enough, but Jesus was good enough for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose for you. So again, I plead with you, if you're not a Christian, trust in Jesus who died for your sins and rose from the dead. He is your only hope. Come to him. Repent. And believe in him. I had a, close, a closing, um, closing story on, on what this looks like to, to accomplish God's activity. Let me give you a few illustrations from the Bible. Familiar Bible stories to you to accomplish God's activity. Remember Lazarus? He was dead in a tomb. 
What could he do? What, what, what power did Lazarus have as a dead man in the tomb for four days? No power at all. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, come out. So God initiates. And then does God come out or does Lazarus come out? Lazarus comes out by his own action. He does something. But God initiated and God enabled it and then God did it in him. That's the same thing in your Christian life. Just like Lazarus. Or another one um, is when uh, Jesus told the man who was paralyzed, pick up your bed and walk. He has no power to pick up his bed and walk. But God initiates. God works it in him. And then he does it and God works it out in him. But not only the willing and the ability and the desire, but also the actual accomplishment of it. And so we need to do the same. You know, Paul says in a prayer here in 2 Thessalonians 1.11, just listen to it. This prayer is the prayer of Philippians 2, 12 and 13. In view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling. And listen to this. What is the prayer? And that God will, by his power, fulfill every desire to do good and your work produced by faith. That's a prayer we should pray for each other. God, fulfill every desire we have for good. Everything I think, any percentage in my heart that wants to do good, God, fulfill it in me. Fulfill it in us. Every desire for good and every work of faith. And it's a work of faith. By believing in Christ, we have the power to obey. So, accomplish God's activity in you. If you fail to accomplish God's activity in you, you will squander the goodness and kindness given to you. God will give you desire and you will waste that desire. You will regret it on the final judgment day. You won't enjoy your life today as God is powerfully working in you. And you might find out on judgment day, God forbid, but you might find out on judgment day that you never really were a true Christian because you never acted on the good desires. But if you do accomplish God's activity in you, you will enjoy God continually. Every day, every day is an adventure of obeying God. You'll experience his power in your life and you'll help others experience it. And you will embody personally and with our church to a dying world the saving power of God for the good of the world. So don't wait for God to intervene in your life. I just need God to intervene in my life. Don't wait for God to intervene in your life. Accomplish God's intervening activity that's already working in you. He's already intervening. Just accomplish that activity. Father, take these words, hide it in our hearts that we wouldn't sin against you. Forgive us for our passivity, for waiting and waiting and waiting when you already give us the desire and the ability to do it. Work this out in our lives, Father. We pray the prayer of Second Thessalonians 1.11, that you would accomplish every, that you would fulfill every desire for good in us and every work of faith by your power. Father, make us an, an active church. Make us an accomplishing church. Not for our glory, but for yours. Accomplish, help us to accomplish our progressive and final salvation with fear and trembling because you are actively working in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.